Welcoming you to Ask Leader. It's the January 13, 2015 edition of Ask Leader. Today, we get another go with the climate change with UCI's esteemed professor, Michael Prather. Along with the new Sum Charlie, we are all Charlie. Je suis Ahmed Tambien. Long live the free press. The free press is exercised here at KUCI with our earnest and our irreverent scale of public affairs. I hope you'll listen to weekly signals Stay tuned with Heather's both earnest and uh, irreverent coverage with her Heather McCoy show and all the other programming here. Live free press lives here on KUCI. So for the first part of the show, we're going to have, as I said, uh, Michael Prather. And then for the latter, larger portion is Pacifica Institute's forum we're going to talk about entitled Muslim Voices Against Muslim Extremism. We'll have on Attila Havetji. And we'll, he'll be talking today about that special form. It'll be right in Irvine. We'll be back in just a few moments. Stay tuned. Thank you, everybody, for staying tuned. Welcome back to my Ask a Leader. My first guest is Earth System Science Professor Michael Prather. This time we hone not only in on his contributions for a moment uh, on the International Panel on Climate Change, which, where he's affiliated, has been for the last, dec well, couple of decades, as long as he's been here, but also a bit about social responsibility and your guides to good guides to Earth climate change. He's the one, if you've heard his name mentioned before, every time we have a citizen's climate lobbyist activist weigh in on this program. Dr. Prather earned his Bachelor's of Science in Math at Yale, his Bachelor's of Arts in Physics at Merton College, and his PhD in Astronomy at Yale. His research interests include, but they are not limited to, atmospheric chemistry, composition, ozone depletion, and climate. Uh, he's been, uh, as I said, on the... Um, International Panel on Climate Change since 92, the same year he joined UCI. He's also, uh, he'll talk about those all those contributions. He's now a, a lead author there for the, the panel. As uh, he's a man, very much in demand, we're very fortunate to have him be with us a spell today. Uh, what we don't finish today, we're going to cover at a later date when he's available. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Michael Prather. Good morning, Claudia. Pleased to join you this morning. Good to have you on. Let's just have you tell us what's your latest endeavor as an affiliate with the International Panel on Climate Change. Well, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just finished its major assessments, and I was a lead author on the first two working groups. Uh, the other working group finished thereafter, and then the synthesis report came out uh, in October this past year in 2014. Right. That was a prelude to what was happening with the COP because the IPCC was supposed to deliver its information in return for the government's meeting in Lima. Uh, this December. And so that's done, and now the governments have used the IPCC as best they can, and now they're on their way to negotiating, which goes far beyond the science, but uh, much into what the governments are willing to do. And uh, Dr. Prather, is there a link for on the International Panel for Climate Change for the lay follower, like, like me, like maybe some right. of my listeners? Right. You will find, um, and, and, it, and IPCC is, is IPCC.ch, okay. which is from Switzerland, where the main organization is in Geneva. So 
secretariat's there. Uh, the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is a government, totally governmental, which in some sense deals with the climate negotiations, that group is an I, dot .int, if you look up them. Okay. Good now, to have that. The, the UNFCCC is the sort of government mandate which inspires or asks for, through several bodies, the intergovernmental panel to meet every so often and reevaluate what we know about climate change, what can be done about it, what the costs are if we don't do, what the costs are if we do do something. Okay. And that's what the government sort of and then invoke the scientists. They turn the scientists loose for five, six years and say, give us an assessment, tell us what's going to happen. And then they restart the process about every seven years, six, seven years to sort of renew it and reevaluate if things have changed. Do you anticipate that cycle accelerating to shorter terms, Dr. Prather? Actually, the uh, current thing, there's a meeting coming up in a couple of weeks in Geneva, in which several of us are going to, on what is the future of the IPCC and how will it be used. And it's how will it be used in the sense from the common people, how will it be used from the governments. Um, there are several articles, including uh, one of the women who will be there uh, has wrote an article that maybe you know the IPCC is, is, is done with now. We need to do different things. Um, in the sense the science is established, but you wouldn't know that from the current politicians and websites. But other than that, right. we'll get to that. it's very funny when, when the intelligentsia tells you the science is already established and you look out there and you realize that you know half the American public read websites that say the science is not established. We so. open that up in a little more detail in just a bit. So I'd like to know there is a responsibility, the social responsibility, with scientists and 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 doing addressing that let's talk about that level of confidence that scientists are beholden to that seems to be hamstringing our uh, collective reaction to this catastrophic climate change trend yes there was a very interesting op-ed piece by naomi oreskes about whether scientists were being overly cautious and this goes back of course to scientific tradition or whatever is that scientists try to evaluate the likelihood of what they're saying is being true they put uncertainties on it they try to assess how good that answer the answer they come up with is which says what's the likelihood of it being correct um, scientists uh... you know this is a this fairly important aspect of it we try to do this we try when we do our calculations to put some uncertainty on it to say how you know, how much do you trust this answer? Because we have different levels of trust. We can do calculations that we know we don't have a lot of faith in, but they're sort of probably right, you know, maybe more than half. Then we have calculations that we do that we know they're right to, you know, probably 10 to 1 or 100 to 1 odds that they're most certainly that that's the right answer. And, and it's reproducible. And the advantage of all this is, of course, it's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of somebody else gets to take your numbers and other people's numbers and reproduce your results. And if they find they cannot... That's when you have all sorts of havoc happening out there, like right. you know, people, re people re reclaiming papers that are irreproducible. And you are talking about you have a confidence level that's uh, much more adjustable. And you were talking in, in preparation here, like what what a betting person and right. that. And so, you're you're comfortable with the two out of three. Well, as I said, and, and I I put out a paper recently a long while ago that we were trying to propagate uncertainties through the whole causal chain of people's activities through to climate change wow. based on the models we had. And it took about you know six or seven miles to, to do the links, and we propagated uncertainty through it. And, and my view was all we wanted was what was traditionally called one sigma uncertainty or one standard deviation, which is about 68%, which is 68 versus 32. It's about two to one betting odds. So if you're within one standard deviation, which would be a 60, 68 percentile confidence, that means there's a 68% likelihood you're right, and there's the remaining 32% that you're wrong. So it's sort of about two to one. It's like two-thirds. 
Um, that's very comforting because, A, it's easy to propagate, B, it makes sense, and you really just want to know your basic confidence. A lot of my colleagues like 95 or 90, 90 or 95% confidence, which means that it's 9 to 1 odds that you're right. Okay? That makes it a large, much wider range of uncertainty because that's what happens if you're going to make it tighter. And then the issue is you, it looks like the results are far less confident than they are. And so there's this thing going back and forth, and we've done some things that were one sigma in the last my chapter in the IPCC that I was involved in. We propagated things as one sigma or this two-to-one odds. Other chapters propagated as 90% confidence or like nine-to-one. And so my feeling was the nine-to-one just wasn't worth doing, and it was far too stricture. So we we don't all get a chance to sit in with the IPCC elite. So uh, it, that you're telling me what everybody's posting. So is there a kind of an inside conversation that you can make us privy to about discussing these confidence levels? Well, we do. And it, it, to be honest, it, this gets down to non-scientific belief about what is appropriate for scientists to quote on confidence levels. And I don't think there's a correct answer at all. And we sort of, I'm not willing to, I don't think it's worth fighting the battles. I give my reasoning why. And some people do, you know, some people like me think that, you know, this is a reasonable way to do it, as you want what's most likely. Likely to me is two to one. If I want to be absolutely certain, one of the things that's humorous is yes. the people who love these 95% confidence levels, we tried to put uncertainties a long time ago. And scientists put, start putting really large uncertainties on this. This was an IPCC probably 15 years ago, one of the early ones we tried to put uncertainties on. They put such wide uncertainty levels that it was useless for any policy or anybody to make a decision on because it covered all ranges. So we'd say, okay, well, who cares at that point if the answer could be anything? Right. And the reason why they put such wide uncertainty levels on is they hated to be wrong. They didn't want to be proved wrong. So they put, even though he said, no, no, you should be wrong as a scientist. This is the point. If, if you really do things right, you're going to do things that you have a hunch that you think are more likely to be right than wrong, and you do them, and you find out, ah, it was wrong. And you should be wrong as a scientist on such matters because you're not, you know, you're not predicting divination. This is not, you know, divine. <laughs> this is not papal and fallacy here. This is basically a scientific effort. You're doing your best job, and sometimes those answers will prove later to be wrong. Scientists hate that. Many. Right, I understand, and that, they can't deal with it. Naomi Oreskes was talking about her uh, her book that she had published about six years ago, and what I'm going to do, I'll just mention it in a topic sure. sentence, and I want to bring it up later with maybe we could talk about. Uh, it, there's a sort of a psychosocial part of this sort of scientific mentality about that need for absolute thinking and a kind of a, a sort of single-minded thinking about it's it's about the proof. It's not about the uh, what's at stake, and it seems to be it, it's just catastrophic that kind of uh, psychic mindset that is uh, hampering efforts to address this. So let's now move into, um, oh, for those of you who've just joined us here on KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine, here on Ask a Leader, my guest is UCI Earth System Scientist Michael Prather. And I want to uh, pivot now into uh, the sources that everyone is consuming. You've, uh, just when you thought, Michael Prather, that you had enough to do with your science, you've got to deal with mythology that keeps coming back. Uh, when the Senate majority flipped into the uh, GOP column, you had uh, Senate Lisa Murkowski of Alaska making a phenomenal claim about the impact of volcanic particulates uh, exceeding the the human-generated, um, human-induced carbon emissions. Uh, what are, what are we? What is your response to what she had to say? Because you're, you're, that's where your work is up in the air with those particulates. Well, I think one of the other IPCC authors quoted 
this is absolute nonsense. It's plainly not true. And I think the question is, where do these people get this from, and, and who do they trust for their information? What's scary is all these, I mean, all sorts of junk things. I mean, the advantage of the web is information is available. The advantage of the web, the disadvantage of the web is a lot of bad information is available. So the question really is, is where do people like Senator Murkowski, like, you know, the school board in West Virginia, which lately decided to revise their views based on their personal views of, of science and climate change, they decide to try to rewrite the state common core curriculum. Where do these people get their ideas from, and who do they trust? Now, some of these people are intentionally doing it. Others, I don't think Murkowski was intentionally this. Somebody told her this, or she looked it up on the web. And I have a lot of time spending time with my undergraduate students going through how do you look up things on the web and how do you actually trust their sources. It's very interesting because I sort of try to train them that I don't want to get papers when you're dealing with sources like this. You should be dealing with major newspapers or news media. You should be dealing with, you know, um, publications from professional societies and journals, okay? Science and nature are always a reliable source. You know, again, scientifically, they may be wrong occasionally, but they're at least a scientifically reliable source. And it's, it's quite astounding how people sort of look things up and because it gives them the answer they want. Dr. Prather, does, the, does the excuse me, Dr. Prather, does the IPCC have a kind of a, a, a sort of a crisis control kind of public policy wing that can swoop in on and uh, work uh, intervene intervene on uh, what the Lisa Murkowski's sort of mouthpieces are uh, generating? I mean, her advisors obviously somebody fed her this information. I don't. But no, there are no. This. I mean, I love the image. It's sort of like it's the paranoia of the other extreme. There are these black helicopters that swoop in on people. But no. Um, only wishful. No, uh, what the IPCC does is they publicize, frequently ask questions, they publicize sort of primers that are useful. They do things, but again, if you want to go and attack, I mean, the problem is this is sort of trench warfare. And so you have uh, Climate Central, you have the people at NASA Gives in New York, Gavin Schmidt, who work really hard on trying to bust, bust all the myths. And they spend a lot of time doing it. I would love to, but I'm not that good at such myth-busting, and it really takes a love and a desire to, to go after this because it's real trench warfare of trying to get out and say, no, this is wrong for the following reasons, and you hope people will read the logical answer. Uh, but, no, there's, IPCC will deliver the core information. A lot of the authors and the scientists who are doing the myth-busting are participants in it or publish papers that are used heavily in it. Yeah, and we have, uh, admittedly, in our own congressional delegation in Orange County, where that I know citizens' climate lobby people are continually working with the delegation on educating them, and there there's a receptivity, but there is an orthodoxy that's sort of blocking the party in power uh, to uh, respond to the, er, the this urgency of, of of climate change. Well, I know we've got to wind it down, so I just what we can close with what is it that you're talking with your students that you're training and and mentoring them to go out in the world? Uh, I know, like Jay Familietti takes his. Uh, his protégés with him to all of his meetings, whether it's uh, the international meetings or in the Pentagon, and, and you're preening yours to do what kind of things? Well, I'm preening mine to think straight and write clearly. I think that's, for my Ph.D. students, that's the most important thing they can do is to communicate well and clearly. Once they, get, once they understand something, they Powerful. can do it well. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much. I, Thanks, uh, I, I'm glad we'll bring all of these things up in greater detail. I'm so glad that Michael Prather, UCI Earth System Scientist, could be here with us today. Thanks for Great. being on Ask a Leader. Chat with you later, okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodness, look at this mess. I'm the one who made it, I do confess.
We'll be right back with our next guest, Attila Kavate, to talk about voices against Muslim extremism. Stay tuned. Oh my goodness, look at this mess. I think I better clean it up. Tell me why now. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest for the remainder of this hour uh, is Attila Kavetti, who is going to talk about tonight's forum convened in Irvine. The theme is Muslim Voices Against Extremism. And to make this topic manageable in our time together here, an engineer by training, Attila Kavachi, uh, is going to speak with us. He's the uh, vice president of Pacifica Institute that is active in interfaith and intercultural dialogue in uh, here in the West Coast. Pacific Institute, since its foundation in 2003, sees its role as improving understanding, respect, and ultimately have compassion for one another without any reservations. And that is what we all need main nine injections of at this time. His affiliation with the Institute began with his decade ago marketing, uh, after a decade ago, he had been a marketing manager and with two different companies in Southern California, and he, then he volunteered uh, for the Pacifica Institute at that time. Attila Kavetti has uh, was raised and educated in Ankara, Turkey. He earned his degree in engineering at the University in Ankara as well. And in advance of appearing at tonight, he joins me here in Studio A. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Attila Kavetti. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Talk about you're amazed at the outpouring in Paris. More than a million people around. There are many people around the world, and you talk about express, uh, this expression of patience for everyone. We're all holding our collective breath that the nuanced thinking prevails before mm -hmm. other fundamentalist backlashes occur. So... Um, we're going to have a, a forum here in Irvine tonight. Uh, not everybody's going to be in this forum. They're going to be hearing a steady dose of uh, of fundamentalists, uh, some might say some sort of fascistic kinds of responses to this. It's, we're already hearing and being cautioned about that. Why don't we talk, um, well, let's, I, there's so many directions here. Um, when the forum was first set up i don't know how long ago was the uh, the voice were, was the panel voices against muslim extremism created that's, that's a very good question well uh this forum uh was thought about it last year like about four months ago so we started planning for that and then i start reaching out to the speakers uh one by one uh which uh i got an overwhelmingly uh, positive response uh first uh the several speakers like sisan professor nair tohidi who's an expert in islam and gender and then dr jihad turk the president of bayan claremont an islamic graduate seminary uh, in claremont school of theology and then muzamil siddiqui who's the president of the uh north america uh, shura council uh, plus Mustafa Kazbani, an imam of the Shiite community in Orange County, uh, plus Dr. Koja, who's a professor of philosophy and Islamic studies in Bayan Claremont uh, School of Theology, uh, all participated and said yes to this. And we need something like this, uh, a kind of a panel, a forum. Uh, first of all, we thought like Muslim Voices for Peace, the title of the forum, but then we said, why not make it deeper? Muslim Voices Against Extremism, where 
each panelist will come up and speak about the uh, well, the peaceful plus their voices against uh, extremism that's happening uh, in one part of the world, in the Middle East, and in some areas in, in other parts of the world. And for listeners that are overwhelmed by these uh, distinguished names on this panel, you can get all the information about them, and I'll, I'll give you the, the, the place and time uh, also as we're closing, but you can go to pacificainstitute.org, and all of these names on the panel will come up. They're going to appear in Irvine, and they're also appearing for anybody who happens to be streaming somewhere else around Southern California. They'll be in L.A. and some, a number of other places. So yes. uh, this esteemed panel is uh, it's a tonic for these uh, tortured uh, uh, times to uh, reconcile uh, so many different kinds of feelings and reactions. And I, and I'm, I mean, it, they were immediate right here. I had uh, one person, uh, an acquaintance that I approached on Saturday, and mm -hmm. uh, I won't, I won't give her background, but um, that I, I was a bit floored when she said, "We've just got to eliminate all of them." And I didn't know where to start with that. And I, all I could say, Attila, was. Why don't we try to break bread first before you know you jump in? And I said, don't you think there's a backlash to just eliminating people? So, but it's 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 in the pipeline the the, the backlash. So, uh, this beautiful um, panel is uh, ours. I, well, let me just say right now, it's going to be at six thirty tonight at one eight eight seven. To Bardeen Avenue in Irvine, and I don't. Is that one of the mosques in Irvine? That well, this is our center in, the in center. Irvine. Yes, the center, Pacifica Center in Irvine. So we have so far uh, close to 200 RSVPs, and we're expecting to have more. So anybody who would like to come is welcome to join us uh, tonight. Okay, I'll be there. I'll be looking forward to seeing any listeners uh, to coming there. So um, let's let's now go to where it felt really personal and the reaction. And uh, and you folks don't know where I'm going with this one, but the je suis je suis Charlie, <laughs> nous sommes Charlie, and we must incorporate into this je suis Ahmed, and I want to pivot into the je suis Ahmed. Mm. This was the patrolman who mm. was killed among the other 15 in and around Paris last week, and je suis Ahmed is what I want to bring up is the victimization of Muslims by Muslim extremists all around the world. And we, we've seen uh, incidences, but I don't think that the mainstream coverage is adequate for us to attend to the, the, the extent of this, this kind of uh, wrecking of havoc. Mm -hmm. So in, uh, in Nigeria, there were uh, thousands massacred uh, and then in uh, Yemen last week, it wasn't even getting the coverage. There were that were many many Muslims uh, killed by m Muslim extremists. So, why don't you talk to us about uh, Islamic states that are themselves um, squeezing in on the their own here, and that that, that we're we're talking ab about a much broader kind of 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 danger here. Uh, that's right. Well. Uh, the and uh, you're completely right. The massacre in Nigeria, where it cost the uh, lives of two thousand people. Yes. Uh, plus, we are not getting any coverage right now about things happening in Syria right now. We're no, we're not. We're not at all. We are not at all. Because we are uh, like kind of used to used used to it. Uh, the thing is, uh, the uh, the voices that are coming out, uh, like extreme voices and uh, extremist voices, uh, coming out uh, from the Middle East, like ISIS. 
uh, is a kind of a threat not only to the Western world but to the very lives of the people that live in that area. And uh, they are a threat to their society, they are a threat to their, uh, to their neighbors, they are a threat to everybody around themselves, even themselves, they are a threat to themselves. Because uh, they don't have any kind of basic principles, they are not rooted deeply in uh, the traditions uh, and the uh, root values of Islam. They think they do, but they are not. Uh, they are just living in their fantasies and whims, and uh, this is kind of a... Uh, they live in a kind of a fantasy world, I suppose, because uh, the things that they say... I occasionally read uh, on some major new, uh, media outlets what they ban in their society, like eating pickles and other stuff. They think pickles, <laughs> pickles. And why would that be? What would I they don't know? Cause they a uh, little amount of alcohol maybe inside. Uh, the fermentation. Fermentation is it like an ethanol product? Wow. Yeah, but this is this is this doesn't have. Uh, they don't have a clue why uh, the, how they base uh, their judgment. So. And when they have a small, uh, if you have a small deviation from the center of the traditional values, you end up uh, finding yourself uh, quite distance apart from the uh, from the very true arguments uh, of the Islamic jurisprudence uh, that was in the 10th, 11th, and 9th century that we find those scholars. So they are kind of new. Uh, this threat uh, to the Islamic society plus the Muslim countries plus the West. Uh, they're very new. They've just came out from nowhere. I don't know, but uh, they're uh, that. Uh, that's why we're doing this panel: Muslim Voice Against Extremism. Is a kind of a very timely. When I spoke with each of the speakers last week, they said we want to be there. One of our speakers are kind of uh, catch a flu, but she says, "I want to be there, Attila. I want to be there with you because this is such a timely Dr. organization." Tohidi? Dr. Tohidi. Okay, putting everything she's got together to come down to be a part of this. Yes, yes, yes. That's yes. how much the how high the stakes are. Well, you're you're talking about this kind of um, interpretation of we're, we're going to talk about the the movement people that are um, or these the renegades that are perpetrating this, and then we can get to some sort of state, um, a th- state sovereign states that are are, are also. Um, creating um, additional sorts of havoc for uh, fellow uh, Muslims. Um, so the these are these renegades I said, I don't know if that's a word that I can uh, that linguists will push me on, but there it's a disaffected group. There's it's like they're 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 falling uh, they're fall in a free fall, a mental free fall. Mm-hmm. And uh, now with the connectivity, the um, the easily produced public relations campaign. It's like this disaffected group has so much more leverage in signing more on to create so much havoc in the world. Um, I don't know uh, what you could say about, uh, if there's anything particular you can say about that aspect well, of them. Uh, you're right. Uh, the root problem, I suppose, in the uh, in anywhere, not only in the Islamic world, is kind of the lack of education. Uh, the education is kind of an integral part of a good society, well-trained society. And, uh, well, uh, the uh, like since the 70s, 60s, 80s, uh, I might say, uh, and the First World War, Second World War, maybe that kind of infrastructure in, wa- in one part of the world had been uh, disseminated. Uh, had been uh, demolished. Uh, 
uh, well, uh, when you look at the, uh, especially the Muslim countries, we call them Muslim countries because the majority of the people living in there are Muslim. Uh, the education system is kind of falling apart and uh, there needs to be a kind of a special emphasis uh, on education and with that education of course uh, I was in Cambodia last uh, August and March and we had a kind of a group of people a group of faculty that went fr uh, from here to Cambodia and Thailand and when I was in Cambodia, I was amazed when I was visiting the genocidal museum in Cambodia where like uh, two million people had been massacred over the course of four years between 1978 and 1982. I was amazed by the fact that Pol Pot and his cronies were actually highly trained people. Uh, they got their diplomas from French Sorbonne University and their cronies, the people around themselves. Well, I said, well, maybe education is not... <laughs> the only solution but there should be another kind of a value kind of a global ethical values should also be kind of inculcated in the people uh, well education is good as a kind of a people in engineering background I feel very much what's lacking in my educational background is that there should also be along with the engineering training there should be a kind of a, a humanities like, core a humanities core well you go there's a pitch for you all that are in affiliate with that and that's what that's what humanities is always trying to uh, justify in their existential uh, dilemmas exactly, here. Exactly, exactly, Claudia. And this is this is this is personal to me. Yes. And it became even more personal when I saw the example of the the land that was devastated by this massacre uh, for four years. Uh, two million people got massacred. Yes. And now there's uh, the country is like it's there was an atom bomb that fell on the country, the whole country. Now it's trying to revive itself. The the uh, the improvement that I saw there last August was amazing. People are just standing up to their feet again. But it can only happen with education. Plus, of course, that was a t Cambodia is a true witness with Pol Pot's example there, bad example there, is that humanities, global ethical values. Uh, what kind of values should there be? Should there be, like, should people hate each other when these kind of engineering, uh, like, when you have this engineering training there? No way, no way. In order to live in this world, this this world became a kind of a, a small village for for all of us now you can go to any part of the of the world in about 13 14 hours by plane and there's a direct link everybody los angeles orange county if you look at the orange county if you look at the los angeles if you look at the many parts of the united states it's becoming more and more diverse people are very cosmopolitan very cosmopolitan like in los angeles there are 100 languages there are 100 consul generals and more than 200 languages are spoken so there should be a way we should we should avoid the ghettoization that the europeans fell into uh, like the people living in there like in france people living ghettos uh, people are not in, as integrated as in here as back back in europe wow for those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest for the remainder of this hour is Attila Kahavechi. He's vice president of the Pacifica Institute, where there will be a panel in Irvine this evening uh, called Voices Against Muslim Extremism. And we're talking about the the distortions around the world where the lack of education, the lack of global ethical values are making for a, a for venal political consequences uh, around the world. Uh, it's just Suiz Ahmed is where we are uh, taking the movement, the, the vigil uh, response 
in Paris and then around the world uh, to addressing how Muslims are themselves being dealt with. And I, what I'm, and you, you mentioned uh, you're talking about Southeast Asia, and I, uh, it's been brought to my attention that in Indonesia it is an Islamic republic, mm. and and in Indonesia it's. It's a like in uh, let's I'm going to tie in the Muslim uh, regimes, uh, sovereign states uh, and the practice of Islam Mm -hmm. uh, that in Indonesia and um, as elsewhere, it is a quietly, privately maintained, uh, observed religion. And so when we're talking about the earlier, the. Um, the renegade Muslim extremists, there is a huge lack of symmetry in the charismatic voices of joining the Islamic renegades versus the quiet uh, day-to-day observance of Islam, which may not even be in the mosque. It's at home on one's own uh, designated special carpet. So, uh, Attila, help us out with reconciling um, the now with educating us now taking this education and this global ethical value how do we understand um how we can reconcile this disparity of uh, how much attention the flesh that is making us uh, making it difficult to to bring onto the world discussion the quieter mm-hmm. values that are really a part of what islam is about uh, that's right. Well, uh, there's this uh, 13th century scholar uh, who goes by name Rumi, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. Uh, he was born in Afghanistan, Belgh, and then moved uh, slowly uh, with his family uh, because he was running away from the Genghis Khan armies in the time in the 13th century. The family felt that uh, the the city, the city would fall into the hands of the Genghis, so they felt that they'd be kind of massacred in that. Uh, in that city, so they slowly moved uh, to Anatolia, to the city of Konya, where it's now in Turkey, in the in central Turkey. And uh, from there, uh, what Rumi said was, uh, "Come, come, whoever you are." Now, this guy uh, is a 13th century scholar, Islamic scholar and a poet, a poet, okay, a scholar, uh, very highly qualified in Islamic jurisprudence. And uh, some people came to him and said. How can you say this? You're a Muslim. How can you say, "Come, come, whoever you are"? So, are you being Christianized? Are you being? Uh, are you becoming uh, Jewish, or are you becoming uh, other religion? You're, you're trying to mix these religions, and then uh, the other guy starts to hurl insults at this guy, and Rumi listens to him patiently. He says, "Are you finished with your words?" The guy says, "Well, well the guy keeps on insulting him with all kinds of bad words, and when the guy." finishes uh, he says I'm also open to you come and let me hug you people need I think compassion in our age uh, now with this guy we see these guys examples in our world unfortunately uh, like the examples of ISIS these bad guys this is the asymmetry now it's beautiful how you're setting up that 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 situation there with yeah. Rumi go ahead yeah and now Rumi lived in a kind of a very tumultuous age it was the time of the Genghis Khan armies coming into Anatolia uh, pillaging the libraries of Baghdad and uh, killing hundreds of thousands of people at once when he invades a city. And here's a kind of a central... Civilians as well? Civilians and Everyone. soldiers, no matter. If I they don't surrender, uh, Genghis Khan's uh, like plan was that he goes in a city and asks the city leaders, if they surrender, they're okay. If not, then 
they'll pillage the whole city and kill the old civilians and pillage everything there. So now there's this figure of Genghis Khan and there's this figure of Rumi on oh. the other extreme. Yes. Now when you see these two examples, of course we should be with the kind of with the p- kind of people who are Rumi oriented. That is being open to everybody. Come, come. When he passed away in 1273, and we also commemorate this back in 2007, uh, the uh, the life of Rumi, wh- where we staged like seven events in the West Coast. One in UCI Berkeley uh, Theater. We had a beautiful, beautiful Willing Dervishes come on stage oh, yes, and perform, right. uh, perform there. And uh, when he passed away in 1273, at the age of 71, I suppose. His funeral was attended by Jews, Christians, Muslims, and people all of all traditions uh, at those times in Konya. And they were asked why, uh, Jews and Christians were asked, and people of other traditions were asked, why do you join the funeral of Rumi? And uh, the people of other traditions said, in that uh, part in Konya, said, well, he was one of us. We felt like he was one of us as well. So going back to the Abrahamic traditions, like Father Abraham, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And going back to Adam, to Noah, all these prophets has one central message. Love your neighbor, love your, love God, love your neighbor. So like being service to God, when you serve God, you also have to serve humanity. You also have to serve your human being, the people around yourself. There is uh, uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, says in one of the traditions, a true Muslim is the one in whose... Uh, in whose the neighbors and other people will will feel 100% safe. So if other people, like our neighbors, don't feel safe about us for their livelihood and other stuff, for their safety, then we are not a true Muslim. That is, we have to give the safety to the people around ourselves, I suppose. And so uh, now if you look at the kind of the traditional values, not kind of the modern age disease, the 20, 21st century disease of this ISIS terror and the suicide bombings. Uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll need to go back to these kind of traditional values and the values that are propagated by the uh, 13th century scholar Rumi and the likes of him. So this is going to be the, the tightest bind. Theologians, scholars, heads of government, uh, people in um, civilian uh, uh, life that how to respond to the sensational non-observant claim of Islam. What, uh, what is a way we can get ahead of the, not only the fundamentalism of this um, co-option of Islam, but and the fundamentalist fascistic reaction that is just foaming, just fomenting up uh, under the surface, if not already coming through. Have you, Attila, any antidotes we take away mm-hmm. from our uh, conversation here and what may be talked about today, Voices Against Mus- ex- Muslim Extremism. Mm-hmm. Any kind of antidotes. I know you're turning over this, this situation. You've been doing it over and over. And, and I say we do this for ourselves. We do this for those who've been, who are at the greatest risk, the ones we've identified all over the world. That's right. Themselves That's right. Muslims. What do, you, what do we do? Well, it's not easy. It's very easy to burn the whole building with one match. 
uh, it only requires what you if you want to burn down a whole building or a house you just need require one match you strike the match and then you put it on fire the whole house will burn down and that match is also that kind of sensational pitch from the ISIL. I don't, I don't call it ISIS. ISIL, I think it sort of brings it down to a different proportion. It's not yes, a yes. state. Yes. It's a. It's the uh, from the Levant, but it's not the state. So yes. I, I hasten to say, so that that match is hyperbole, that vitriol in those recruitment videos that are circulating everywhere. Uh, now, how do we get that? Uh, so you're talking about that match. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's step back and what you're going to say about that. The, yes, yes. the, the, the match is in, it's manifest in so many nefarious ways. Yeah, but it requires a very good team uh, to be able to build a whole house, and it requires time. And this also requires time, I suppose. Uh, well, the, the three enemies of the humanities are the ignorance, poverty, and hate. Uh, well, ignorance can be the solution. To, the only solution to ignorance is education. And education with humanities plus global ethical values that everybody, every religious tradition and non-religious tradition, ethics, agree on. There's global ethical values plus good training, good education, master's, PhD. The more people read, the more people will get to know one another. And plus also we have to tackle the poverty. That is the poverty uh, that is so much widespread in not in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, in Africa, in Asia, in other parts of the world, people are trying to make up with less than one dollar a day, and uh, and and if that is culminated with not getting good education, that makes a kind of an angry, very angry individual. That's the cause of most of the revolutions in the history of the world, unfortunately. And of course, uh, the last part is we have to tackle the hate that is coming out, and this overflow overflows into killing the other and plus also being cruel to the environment killing the other killing of the same group killing of the same group killing the other people of other traditions of other uh, other backgrounds and also this overflows into the environment the things that we do to to our environment uh i think if we can uh, have a good team of people that are coming together uh, and we've seen these examples there are millions of voices uh they're saying these things in both the muslim world christian world and the Jewish world and other traditions and other non-belief systems that people have to come and have a kind of a common goal of bringing the humanity to the next level which is having good education and uh, uh, avoiding poverty and plus also trying to get rid of hate Uh, now when there's hate there's not true love in the people's heart so a true love can only be attained by eliminating the, all the hate that we have in our heart towards other beings, to, towards our uh, neighbors or uh, friends or, say, other groups. I'm going to leap into how hate or, let's say, a disingenuous kinds of, of reactions um, manifest themselves in the turnouts over uh, up right through Sunday, and I think there's a lot of bloody shirts that have been waving. That's one form of hate. Mm -hmm. And I know that a good deal of press has been critical Mm -hmm. of Benjamin Netanyahu Mm -hmm. turning out with other leaders um, for a uh, who is, I'm concerned he's making a calculated effort here to take this 
um, the the victimization of the five I think there were five Jewish people in yeah. Paris, yeah. Um, and s- use that to reinforce his existing policy, which deals with pushing back mm. on his Islamic constituents in mm. around in the West Bank and in Israel proper. And so uh, we're, I'm t- thinking of the expropriation of land, of uh, the, uh, the, the human rights issue mm-hmm. with Palestinians. So uh, he, there is a concern about the kind of sliding uh, scale of how uh, hatred of another person in, in per- terms of policies um, all the way to uh, attacks, what, kinds, what, we're, what we're facing here in rolling back the vitriol mm-hmm. and state codified disenfranchisement and human rights um, transgressions. And I, I mean, we know that the Palestinians want to take up in the international courts what happened in Gaza, mm-hmm. and there uh, there uh, is very little kind of oversight of what what how that broke down uh, and all that kind of a thing. So what um, uh, I, I'm just I'm bringing that example of where. Uh, le- what, hatred starts with bad faith on, on the continuum, all yeah. the way to to murder. Yeah. Well, President Hollande and uh, Angela Merkel, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, uh, made very good statements right after the text that this is not kind of Islamic. What's happened to to the Paris shootings is not at all Islamic, and uh, they made it clear uh, to the public that we are standing against extremism. And uh, the, as I shared with you, the uh, kind of the response that came from the public, the French public, is 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 amazing. Yes. Uh, over two million people showed up for for the for the mass demonstration um, for the mass protests against these kind of voices of extremes. But uh, and Secretary of State John Kerry also made it very clear that they'll uh, in any way help uh, France to avoid these kind of things again in the future. Uh, the thing is. Uh, <coughs> There are so many uh, voices of 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 how my how might say uh, of people who are standing against these extremist voices. Like for example, right after 9/11 attacks, there's a uh, there's a scholar who put an ad on the newspaper, on New York Times and Washington Post, that a Muslim cannot be a terrorist. A terrorist cannot be a Muslim. Ad on the newspaper. Do you remember who that was that posted that? That was Fethullah Gülen, a Turkish Islamic scholar who goes by name G U L E N. Fethullah Gülen uh, is the guy. He's a uh, he's a state-appointed preacher in the 1960s in Turkey, and then initiated a kind of an educational effort in the 70s and 80s, where it became very popular. And now there are thousands of education institutions in Turkey and plus around the world in more than 160 countries. And in the 1990s, he went ahead I- in Turkey and then he met with religious and interfaith leaders and uh, met with the uh, the Jewish rabbi of Turkey and then Islam, Armenian Patriarch and Greek Orthodox Patriarch Bartolomeu. And also he went to visit Pope in 1997. So way before 9-11, there was these voices of mainstream. There's people trying to bridge gaps and turning walls as uh, uh, a Bishop Lutheran in, in Southern California, Bishop D. Nelson says, turning walls into tables. We, need, we don't need a, any kind of walls. I'm sorry, which bishop? Us. So we, we've got him as a model. What's his name? Yeah, bishop? Lut- Lutheran bishop, so-called Lutheran bishop, Bishop D. Nelson, uh, says turning walls into tables. We don't need okay. no walls anymore. We need tables to sit around and discuss our There's common humanity. Yes, yes. For those of you who've just joined us, I just want to remind you again, my guest is... Attila Cavetti, 
and he is the vice president of the Pacific Institute here on Ask a Leader, and he's going to be uh, part presenting from with the Pacific Institute tonight at in Irvine, starting at 6:30, a forum entitled "Voices Against." Muslim extremism, and that will be at 18872 Bardeen Avenue. Details, folks, for now and for later at pacificainstitute.org. I also want to put up there for other sources as we're talking about gaining more literacy about Islam, about cross cultural opportunities. I want to refer people to the Bayan Claremont Islamic Graduate School. I, you just set that up on your search engine and you'll get their website. And there was also a, a, a very privileged friendship of mine who refers us to the Ebicina Cultural and Educational Foundation at www.ecef.org. And I, I encourage you to look up all of these because uh, it's our project's not getting any easier. It's only getting uh, just as hard as is getting to make a, the claim about climate change. I mean, these are two we're talking two fundamentalist uh, barriers to reversing catastrophic trends in our world. I mean, it, it, they're both catastrophic. And I don't call it the word tragedy. There's no redemption in either one of these. It's a kataba. It's a catastrophe. So. Um, You've mentioned all of the panel members that uh, Norea Tohidi, mm -hmm. Oscar Koka, Jihad Turk, Muzami Siddiqui, and our own and Irvine Imam Said Mustafa Al Kazini, and they are going to be all on the panel. There's a will there be some sort of spill out space for people at the the Pacific Institute Center so that everybody uh, can uh, be welcome to come to this forum. Yeah. So I guess to conclude however we can with a, a hopeful takeaway mm -hmm. and a constructive sort of a fa call to action. Other than convening here, let's say the, the next round we uh, conversation, we're going to meet somebody who says, because they're scared. And I understand mm -hmm. some people are more scared than others. That's how they're processing this kind of mm -hmm. phenomenon, uh, th this development. Uh, what is the next thing for you would for you to encourage that person to say when people are confronted with what I was last Saturday is we've just got to off all of them. Well, uh, the thing I would say that directly comes to mind is what Fethullah Gülen said back in the 1997 when he was uh, starting initiating this interfaith dialogue in Turkey, people coming together. Well, maybe we as Muslims haven't been able to express ourselves nicely as enough as it should be uh, I don't believe that there's an inherent problem in Islam there is a problem now in the Islamic world unfortunately that is the threat of terrorism suicide bombings and other other things but as more and more people are are, are, are having these researches like Robert uh, Robert Pape from University of Chicago when Robert whom Robert Pape okay uh, from University of Chicago when he investigated a research paper he had a huge paper and book about this when he uh, researched the reasons the root causes for uh, for suicide bombings he found out that the the concern of land was at the root of suicide bombings 90 percent so it's only 10 percent that there was a kind of a religious motivation uh, so what we can come up with that uh, this uh, uh, there is a problem, there is a terrorism problem that we need to deal with uh, in our own midst. Uh, but 
as you say, there are millions, there are 1.2 mil billion uh, Muslims Mus yes. uh, in, in the world. And I can say 99.9% doesn't see a terror or suicide bombings as a solution. They see it as a kind of a threat to themselves, as we mentioned. It's because it's taking a brunt. The Muslim uh, societies themselves are taking the brunt from these terrorist acts, most of the terrorist acts. Without their due, without the attention of, yeah. uh, of taking stock of that. Yeah. We're yeah. taking stock, uh, of course, of last week, but uh, it's the, the, the mission of this conversation here is to, to broaden that awareness of where the, the, yeah. these hits are occurring. So wha what I was saying yes. to your friend is that last Saturday when you saw him, uh, when he was, uh, uh, when she was expressing her fear, that maybe we weren't able, we weren't able to express ourselves in a way that we should that we should be more in contact uh, with the people who fear uh, from the Muslims. Well, we have our work cut out for us, dialing down this, the vitriol, dialing down and, uh, and dialing up into the literate reaction to this. I want to thank you, Attila Khavetti, today for being on the show. Claudia, and thank you for having me. And so I'm, uh, I'm hoping there's an overflow crowd, and I'm hoping there's every bit of a, a very diverse following and everybody takes back lots of notes that they've written uh, in the forum. Are, are they structuring a really interactive piece to this? Is there going to be a lot of yes. question and answering kind yes. of sessions? The, so the, each panelist will speak about 10 minutes and then we'll have a Q&A section afterwards. So everybody's welcome with their questions. So I guess, Attila, as we're closing here, I'm tacking on this last question. Uh, it's a request or a qu and a question is, Will you make room for the most wide-eyed question that is that has to be allowed the space for to be asked? Of course, of course. Because I think that's where we're going to make of some course. inroads. Is that like they we used to learn in uh, primary education? There are no stupid questions. There's no too wide-eyed question to in advance literacy in interfaith understanding. And each of our panels are very able speakers to be able to answer all kinds of questions that are coming from our crowd. I suppose. Okay. Ahmed Kavetti, thank you so much for You're being welcome. on the show, and I'll see you tonight. Cloudy. Thank you. See you tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. This brings Ask a Leader to a close. Next week, we'll hear from Bill Heidbrink and fellow contributors. They'll talk about the now institutionalized rock star presentation, Adventures in Physics, Quantum Circuits, a special forum to be held on campus at the end of the month. Thank you for listening, everyone. Talk to you next week. Bye, bye.